First Peter chapter 5, and uh, we're studying verses 8 through 11 this morning, and uh, I'd, I'd like to start reading in the middle of verse 5, just uh, to recap, kind of catch us up in, in the context here. First Peter 5, in the middle of verse 5, uh, where Peter writes, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for... God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, you have all dominion, God. You are all power and all sovereignty, Father. We praise you, we exalt you, we lift you up. And God, we have hope because of who you are. We praise you forever. We begin now imperfectly, but Lord, we look forward to when it will be perfect in your presence. We pray that you would work through your word this morning in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are now already at the end of the main body of Peter's letter to the elect exiles in what is now Turkey. Not the Turkey that we ate last week, the country that we call Turkey. I knew, I know, some of you are, come on, okay. He's had so much to say to these people scattered throughout this region in this letter. We've been blessed because we've seen that God has so much to say to us through it. And we've seen encouragement and warnings and hope. And hopefully, Lord willing, we've been challenged, we've been convicted and changed for his glory. So as Peter now finishes the main body of this letter, the theme here in this section is faith. Our faith. Now, whenever we read faith, whenever we read that word in the Bible, we need to make sure we know what kind of faith is being considered. Are we talking about our belief in the truth, subjective faith, or are we talking about the truth itself, objective faith? Now, before you answer that, because we tend to lean toward one side or the other, to to lean more towards subjective or more towards the objective faith, uh, we need both. So we need to make sure we understand that. But objective faith, um, as we're using this term this morning, is the object of our faith. It's the truth that makes up what Christianity is, what we call Christianity, that's objective faith, all the truth wrapped up within what that means. It's more than just a list of bullet points, but it's, it's everything that's here, the truth that's found here in the Word of God. And the theme of the Word of God, the theme of the Scriptures is, hopefully we all know this, that it is Jesus. Jesus is the theme of the entire Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, So our objective faith is what or who makes up our faith. And this is the way that Jude used it. You remember when Jude was was writing, he set out to write, he said, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The, The whole collection of truth that makes up our faith, it was delivered in its objective. Subjective faith is kind of scary for many of us because we kind of think, well, that That means we're all just kind of figuring out for ourselves what to believe. But that's not what we mean by subjective faith. It means our own belief in the objective faith. So here's the truth. our, Our faith is here. It's what we believe. But do we really believe it? That's subjective faith. And it's more than just knowing it. It starts with knowing. But then as we internalize it and are changed by it, are we believing it internally, subjectively for ourselves? That's subjective faith. And that's what Paul meant when in Romans 3, he says, talking about the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so when we believe the Bible, we need to answer which kind of faith is being discussed. Because sometimes what's in view is objective faith, and sometimes it's subjective faith. Now, to be clear, 
when the Bible does talk about our subjective faith, our believing in the truth, it's always dependent on the objective faith, right? We're, we're not just talking about believing, because a lot of the world can talk about believing, but believing in what? The subjective faith of our belief is in always dependent on, it's always in the objective faith. Well, here at the end of First Peter, he's speaking of our belief in the truth, our subjective faith in the objective faith. And he uses some familiar terms, but he also gives us some new information that adds some urgency to that faith, as well as some hope. So this faith that is ours, Peter says this faith, this subjective faith in the objective faith is intended to replace what we talked about two weeks ago in verse 5, anxiety. Fear, worry, anxiety are constant companions for so many of us. And we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, not just in the world, not just in our country, not just in the people around us, but in us, right? It's a constant companion within so many of us. And when that's true of us, our Christian life is going to be a battle that is constantly fought in our minds. Now, all Christians have a battle that's going on in their mind, their, their new life that they have in Christ with the flesh, the mind of the flesh that pulls and tugs against that. But anxiety, worry, fear are a huge and all too common battle for many Christians. But what we need to recognize, what we need to admit is that stripping away anxiety and replacing it with faith, which is what God gives us to replace anxiety with, will be difficult. It's going to be hard to do that. They said, why, why would it be hard? Isn't anxiety something kind of painful to go through? It is. It's painful to be held under the chains of anxiety. But the thought of not having that familiar pain may cause even more anxiety for us than whatever it might be to live without it. Whatever it might look like to not have it. You know, I'm, I'm afraid of what it might look like to not have anxiety, right? That's going to be difficult because anxiety becomes its own little sphere of existence. I'm anxious, I'm worried, I'm in fear, but I'm used to it, right? I know my anxieties, I know what to do about them. When I'm anxious about being around other people, what do I do? I just don't go around other people, Right? <laughs> When I'm anxious about trying something new, I might fail, so I just won't, <laughs> right? I can control a lot of my anxieties. My anxieties control me, but I'm also in a sense to control them also. Adding anything new would only add new anxiety or more anxiety to what I've already got. So it becomes a walled-in sphere of existence that's painful, but it's a known pain that we get used to. Not only that, but our anxieties can become a shield for us. You know, God says I'm supposed to love other people, but God, I get really anxious around other people. So can I just have a pass on those commands, Lord? It's really hard because what might they think of me? What might they say of me? How might I get embarrassed because of what I might do or might not do or say or not say? God, maybe you could just give me a pass. And so we can find all kinds of reasons not to obey God, because we have this shield that protects us. So this is part of why it can be difficult and painful to be motivated to strip away anxiety and to replace it with faith. Because it just perpetuates itself. It feeds on itself. It feeds off of us. And after a while, we can't imagine life without it. We don't like it. But we don't like the idea of not having it, not having it to hold on to even more. It's like that parasite that latches on and it lives off of us. It depends on us, on us for survival. And we could kill it, but we kind of get used to it. We kind of like it being there. But as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Jesus told us not to be anxious about your life. He said, don't be anxious about food and drink and your body and clothing and what will happen tomorrow, persecution for your faith. All that's in Matthew 6. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Philippians 4, says, do not be anxious about anything. That's pretty all-encompassing, right? But that's easier said than done, isn't it? But God gives us grace to overcome it and to trust in Him to care for us rather than trusting in anxiety to shield us, rather than anxiety to be our shield and our wall and our buttress. Our God is our buttress. He is our shield and our uh, protector. 
And as we said, we may never conquer anxiety completely in this life. We may struggle with it for our entire life, but we will be battling it God's way with His grace and gaining victory over it little by little, little by little, sometimes big, big steps. But it's all by God's grace because His grace is powerful. His grace is powerful enough to save us, to change us. His grace strengthens us in Christ Jesus. But in His grace, God gives us a gift to replace anxiety with because anxiety replaces faith. So in God's grace, as we come to Him, faith pushes out and replaces anxiety. I alluded to Matthew 6. Jesus speaks about anxiety there. In verse 30 of Matthew 6, He says, Oh, you of little faith. He's not putting down people's faith like, well, you just don't have enough faith. He was speaking of the quality of your faith. What is their faith based on? You know, God cares about birds and flowers. Why wouldn't he care about us, right? We who are made in his image. I also alluded to Philippians 4 where Paul addresses the topic. Verse 1 is how he transitions to it. And he says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown stand firm. Thus, in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in this faith that we've been discussing, that I've been writing about, that you've been reading about and hearing. So faith is what comes in and can replace anxiety. Here in 1 Peter 5, as we read through these verses, look at verse 9. After the call in verse 8 for sober-mindedness and watchfulness, which are characteristics of faith, as we've seen over and over in 1 Peter, he says we are to resist our enemy firm in your faith. And so the, the enemy is not going to be just anxiety, but all of the attacks of the enemy, the attacks of the devil. Faith is a powerful weapon that God gives us to engage in these battles. Because this, this weapon that God gives, not only is, is His grace powerful, His faith that He gives to us, to us is powerful because 1 John 5, 4, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. Now, I know that for many of you who struggle with anxiety or for people who have been taught about doing battle with the devil, you've, been, you've heard, you've been told, you need to have more faith, right? How many, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever been told that if you approach somebody at church and, you know, I'm really anxious about this or that, I'm really worried about this, I'm, I'm, I'm living in fear with this or that, how many of you have been told, you just need to have more faith, you don't have to raise your hands, but yeah, it's, it's common. There's a common answer in the church. Just like the wrong advice we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that's more wrong advice. Hey, remember, the, remember some of the wrong advice we talked about a couple of weeks ago? Just, just shoulder all the problems, suck it up, buttercup, you know, I mean, just get over it and deal with it. That was bad advice, right? That's not humbly coming before God and casting our anxieties on Him. That's bad advice. And then it's also bad advice to just throw everything at God and say, look, God, I'd be doing a whole lot better if you didn't make this happen, and I didn't have that, and I had this, and all of the problems and all the things, I just throw it on God. That's not casting our anxieties on God. That's throwing everything at Him in pride. So those were both opposite ends of wrong advice. Here's more advice. Just have more faith. Because that's not what God tells us. It's not what Jesus taught. Because faith is not something that we just drum up from within ourselves. It's not something you just come up with, that you just make yourself believe. A faith that you make up isn't true faith. Because faith comes from who? From God. It doesn't come from us. Paul says in Romans 12, 3, that we are to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God assigns our measure of faith to us. The amount of faith we have comes from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. It's God's powerful gift of grace, His powerful gift of faith that works to bring about his purposes. He's the one who gives us faith. How does he get it to us? Well, we've talked about it before. Romans 10, 17, it's his word that's the vehicle of bringing faith to us. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. That's how it comes to us. But he's the one that gives it to us. And then what he expects us to do with that faith is to grow it stronger, to grow it more firm 
That's what we're held responsible for. Not how much faith I have. He may have given me as the faith of a mustard seed, right? But he said if I had the faith of a mustard seed, I could move a mountain. So it's not how much faith I have, but what, what have I done with it? Have I grown this faith? Have I strengthened and made more firm this faith? In your notes, you'll see God doesn't tell us to have more faith, but to strengthen the faith he has given us. To strengthen that faith. This is something that takes work on our part, to strengthen our faith. It doesn't take work to get the faith. We don't want to teach a a heresy where we have to work to get faith. This is all given by God's grace. But it takes work to grow that faith. And by God's grace, we obey it in love, and it grows and nurtures and cultivates and strengthens that faith into what he would have for us. Jesus is the beginning and the end of our faith. That's what Hebrews 12, 2 says, the founder or originator, perfecter, completer of our faith. Jesus is the sum total of our faith. He is our objective faith. But have we learned more from Jesus, about Jesus, so that we grow our subjective faith? You have John 20 in your notes. We were going to turn there and walk through Thomas and how he heard the truth, the objective reality that Jesus had risen from the dead, but he said, I will not believe until I see it and feel it, right? And Jesus said, look, you had the truth, you heard the truth, but you didn't believe. Blessed are those who have believed and yet have not seen, right? Faith is the hearing the truth, hearing the word of God, hearing the objective truth. That's how God gives us our subjective faith. And then we grow that by learning of Jesus. What did Peter say way back in chapter one, verse eight? He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Where did it come from, Peter says? Well, chapter 2, verse 23, he said, since you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. It's how it comes, it's how God gives it to us, and it's how we grow it and nurture it and cultivate it. So if God is the one who gives us faith, if he's the one that enables us to believe, why would we ever go around telling everybody, you need to go see God to get more of it? (laughs) You need to have more faith, right? That's not a a valid answer. Wouldn't that be putting down what God's given that person? You know, God, you you didn't give this person enough faith. I'm telling them to come get more from you. If God's gift of faith to us is powerful enough to be part of how he saves us from an eternity of hell, paying for our own sins, if our faith that he gives us can save us from that, why would we think that our faith isn't strong enough to get us through temporary problems, the things of this world? If we believed in Jesus Christ, he is our Lord and Savior, we believe that God has done the impossible, as we sang about this morning, to save us forever. The faith that he gives us is more than enough to carry us through what he brings into our life. So the answer to tell people struggling with anxiety or struggling with attacks from our enemy, which we'll get to in a minute, is not just have more faith. You can't just get more faith if it's a gift that God gives you. If the person is a believer in Jesus Christ, God has already given that person faith, right? The way that we strengthen it, the way that we grow it from little and weak to firm and strong is the same way we we receive it. It's his word, longing for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So if we're to have a stronger faith, a firm faith, we need to be in his word. This is the gift from God that we can and should be using in our life to battle anxiety and satanic attacks and any other kind of thing that comes into our life. Fear, worry, anxiety, um, you know, anything that comes comes against us. Our, Our faith that God has given us. So Peter here in these verses, as he wraps up this letter, helps us to see what firm faith actually looks like. As we spend time in the Word, And the other ways that God gives us to grow our faith, to firm it up, what will it look like? How do we know that we're growing our faith, that we're firming it up properly? Uh, How do we know that as we are working on these things that God's given us to work on, how do we know that we're being successful? Well, Peter in these verses gives us five aspects of a firm faith. 
So we can tell that he's working in us and we can see the growth that we have in this faith. The first one, number one, is from verse eight. And it teaches us that firm faith is a ready faith. It's a ready faith. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Now, these aren't new words to us, right? We've seen these throughout First Peter and even in Mark. Sober-minded means that we are in control of our thoughts. It means that we're in control of our minds, what we're thinking. It includes not being under the influence of alcohol or anything else that would alter our thoughts besides the Word of God worldly entertainment or drugs or whatever it is, don't follow anything or anyone. Don't allow anything else to control your thoughts except God's word. That's sober-minded. Remember in 1 Peter, we were told to be sober-minded, to prepare our minds for action because the battles will come in our mind. In chapter 4, verse 7, he said, be sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. So this is, this is not new information to us. It's a good reminder. But he adds the word watchful. And this is familiar to us if we were here as we studied Mark, the, the gospel of Mark, as Jesus told his disciples six times, <laughs> all in a row, watch, watch, be alert, be ready, be watching, be watchful, watch. He says it over and over again. This is the word that we use out in baseball or softball, you know, to the people that are out in the outfield. Look alive out there, right? This is the kid that's looking at the grasshopper. <laughs> when the ball comes, look alive out there. What? You know, be watchful, look alive out there. If we get caught watching for the wrong things or not watching at all, we'll miss what we should be ready for. Don't do what the rest do who've never heard any of this. Have your thoughts controlled by the word of God and be ready, be alert, be watching. Attacks should not take Christians by surprise. I found an illustration of these two words, sober-minded and watchful. There was, there was a woman in the second century, her name was Biblis, and she was a Christian. She'd been accused of being a Christian. And at the time, to be a Christian was, uh, was what earned you torture or even death. And so as she was being tortured because she was accused of being a Christian in weakness, she got to the point where she denied Christ. And she seemed to go into this, this trance there. And, and they would have finished, they would have been finished with her, but they knew at the time that Christians are never alone. And so as they're trying to root out all of the Christians, they continued to torture the woman until she told them about where the other Christians were. So they continued to torture her, but witnesses there said that somehow she seemed to have come out of that trance. She, came, she seemed to gain control of her thoughts. She became sober-minded, and she seemed to wake up as from a deep sleep. That's the word watching that we have here, be watchful. They said from then on in her torture all the way up to her death, not only did she not reveal the location to the other Christians, she reaffirmed her faith in Christ. And suffered to the point of death. That's the two words here. Becoming awake. Waking up and being in control of my thoughts and my mind. In my mind and saying, okay, I know what I'm after. I know what I'm going for. I know who I believe in. That's the two words here. Sober-minded and watchful through anything that happens. Through anything that doesn't happen. From anxiety to satanic attacks. This is... This is what our faith is. It's, it's a ready faith, sober-minded and watchful. So here at the end of this letter, Peter finally is pulling back the curtain to show us who's behind the slandering, the maligning, the persecution that we've been talking about through this letter. You know, we've been seeing the people just putting Christians down and putting them down and slandering and reviling. But he's, he finally pulls back the curtain and he shows us our adversary, the devil, is the one who's behind all of that that's been happening. Adversary here means one who is continuously hostile. That means that there never is a point where the devil is for us, <laughs> clearly, and there's never a point even when he's neutral toward us, when he doesn't really care about us. He is constantly and always hostile against us as our adversary. In fact, you know him by his name, Satan, which means adversary. Now, he's first God's adversary. He tried to raise himself up against God and even above God. You can read about it in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Those verses are in your notes. He actually tried to stage a direct coup over God's leadership and God's sovereignty. 
But he's not just God's adversary. When we become children of God through Jesus Christ, he becomes our adversary as well. You've heard the statement before, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and the friend of my enemy is my enemy. As God's new friends, we are now enemies of Satan. And Jesus calls us friends. We're called his children. We're called sons and daughters. We're called joint heirs with Jesus. We're called the bride of Christ, Christ's body here on earth. We can't get any closer to him than to be part of who he is. So just as Satan hates God and would desire to overthrow him, he hates us now, believers, Christians. We become objects of his attacks. And that's true not only because of our relationship with God, but also because God is our protector, right? If Satan can get through God's protection to us, then he can demonstrate a great power greater than God's to get to us. So it's not only just because he hates us because we're familiar with God, we know God, but because also he can, if he can get around God, then he can have a show of power to break through God's protection. Now, here's what we may not think about. We may not think along these lines, but we are so often guilty of taking ourselves outside of the protection of God. We can take ourselves outside of the protection that he gives us. He's given us the the way to protect us. The way that he's given us to be ready and to be protected is his word, as we've talked about. It's prayer, talking to him, casting our anxieties on him humbly. It's, It's speaking with him, pouring out our requests. It's in communion with his saints, his, his other sons and daughters, our brothers and sisters in our koinonia fellowship communion partnership. That's a way that he's given us to protect us. Worship, when we worship him, when we obey him, and when we keep abiding in him, that's his protection of us from the evil one. But we can get away from all of that. We can take ourselves out of his protection. And in effect, we start working with the adversary, with our own enemy, rather than with our God who protects us. As long as we abide in Jesus and remain in him, Paul calls that wearing our armor in Ephesians 6, our adversary cannot come against us without God allowing us for those tests that we've talked about to grow us, to strengthen us, like he did with Job. He cannot come to us without God's working through that. Now, it's true that nothing happens outside of God's sovereignty, but just as in every area of life, we can actually, we're responsible for our actions, right? And we can, we can remove ourselves from God's protection, open ourselves up so that Satan can attack us without having to go through God's direct allowance. Listen, that's who he's prowling around for in these verses. As he's seeking someone to devour, he's looking for someone who has let their guard down taken off their armor, sat down. Their, their guard is down so they're not sober-minded, they're not watchful, they're not ready. When he, he can get to us. He can get to us so much easier to get through, to have his plan accomplished. He's like a roaring lion, Peter says here. He, he's making all kinds of noise as he goes around as an adversary. Now, why is he making all that noise? Because Peter also calls him here the devil which means slanderer, means accuser. So let's make sure we get the picture right in our mind, okay? The devil is a person who walks around, not a human being person, but a real living person, not just an evil force. He's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The picture is not the hunt where a lion quietly sneaks up on its prey through the grass, staying low and quiet, you know, and then suddenly launches out and attacks. That's not the way that Peter paints this picture for us. The picture is that he's right there. He's out there. We see him. We know him, that he's out there, and he's walking around roaring. He's constantly making all kinds of noise, constantly accusing you, constantly maligning you, putting you down, trying to bring anything that would replace your faith, including anxiety, fear, worry, or any kind of attacks that would take away your faith, that would replace faith. He's the one that was behind all of the people slandering us. He's the one that brings us anxious thoughts, the same thoughts that excuse us from obedience to God in love. It brings down our defenses even more, and it becomes a cycle. He just gets the little bit inside there. 
He just gets a little foothold in there. And then from within, he starts breaking down what we believe and what we know and what we hold on to. Those who have surrendered their mind to something other than God's word or those who have given up being watchful, taken off their armor, they're susceptible to this attack of the lion that is Satan prowling around, looking to devour them. What does that word devour mean? The word itself means to, com- to cause a complete and sudden destruction of something, to ruin completely. That's what he's trying to do. That's what he's after. He's trying to ruin completely our faith. For those who are unsaved, unprotected, this is another description of Satan blinding the minds of unbelievers that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He works to make sure that they stay blinded. It's another way of saying what Jesus talked about in his parable of the soils, where Satan comes and snatches away the word before they can believe, before it takes root in their heart. He devours it, makes a complete and sudden end so that they will not believe. For those who say, I believe in Jesus, how could he devour us? You know, even if you remove yourself from God's protection, believer, you can never be dragged away from God's hand. You can never be taken out of God's preservation. If you're in his hand, his mighty hand, you are protected forever. He can never take you out of God's, God's hand. But you might find out that you never really were in his hand you, you may have thought for a while, well, I go to church and I give money and I teach and I sing and I do all of these things. Here's my list of all my good deeds. I must be saved. And then find out that Satan drags you away and you stop believing for a time and you say, how could that happen? Well, it may have been just because I never actually truly had that subjective faith, believing in the objective faith. But that's a grace from God to show you, look, here's an opportunity to truly believe. For those who are truly saved, Satan's devouring can make a complete end of your usefulness for the Lord. Uh, you know, how, how much are you going to work for the Lord? How useful are you and I going to be for the Lord if our faith is wavering, if it's shaky, right? Satan can never drag you away, but he can incapacitate you, right? He can kind of knock you down, throw you over. We've been saying that everything that the Lord brings into your life is to bring you to the Lord for salvation, to make you into the image of his son, and then to make you useful. Satan can't stop you from getting saved if the Lord's working in you. He can't stop you from sanctification. The Lord will have that. I'm persuaded that he will complete that, right? But he can knock you down so that you're not useful. And that's what we've been seeing here. Satan accuses. He slanders. He questions. Those questions or thoughts in your mind that cause you to second guess what God has said it justifies our disobedience, we excuse ourselves and our sin, all of those things. Those are the roaring noises that he's making. It's when you're not sober-minded or watchful that you fall for them. Are you sure you're a real Christian? Do you know, did you see what you just did, right? How could a Christian think that way? How could you have said what you just said to that person, right? Those accusations that come up. And it sounds like ourselves speaking. It sounds like ourselves, our own thoughts, our own mind. But it's the accuser accusing us to us. It's the accuser accusing other believers to us. Did you see what that person just did? (laughs) Right? He wants to break up our fellowship. He wants to break up our faith. He wants to break up everything that God's given us that will grow up our faith. What about these? You don't have any gifts, you think you're gifted by the Holy Spirit? How prideful is that, right? You, gotta be, you're, you should be ashamed of yourself. People don't even like you. How about that one? People might think badly of you. Think about what they would say about you. Now, we're not talking about conviction of sin here. There is a conviction of sin. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, it's to lead us to a godly sorrow that produces repentance. When Satan is showing us our sin and accusing us, it's just to beat us down so that we can't get back up and so that we're not useful to the Lord. So this enemy, this this adversary, accuser, slanderer, is a powerful enemy. He's a subtle enemy. He can use anxiety and worry and fear and all kinds of thoughts and accusations against you. He uses anything to get us away from the protection of our God. Sometimes he even uses the word of God. You know, we can read something and we can take it out of context or we can mishear it, misunderstand it, and then he can start using that as a weapon against us. So Peter says, let's be sober-minded. 
Let's be watchful. Let's be ready for those attacks. That's a firm faith. What do we do then? When we see the attacks, we notice them for what they are. Number two, firm faith is a resistant faith, verse 9. A resistant faith. Peter says, resist him. Again, since this is a personal, real, evil being, we can resist him. He's not just a force. We actively oppose him and stand against him. That's resisting him. It's not just defensive, it's proactive. If I know there are consistent times when he's going to attack me, I know that certain times, when I do this, when I don't do that, when I go over here, whatever it is, I know that I'm going to be feeling down, I'm going to be feeling those, those feelings, I'm going to have those thoughts in my mind. I need to be ready, right? I need to be ready to resist because he's going to attack. Now, some people make everything all about Satan, right? I mean, he's behind every bush, he's, you know, around every corner, and, you know, he becomes the focus for people. We can get really off track that way. Uh, thinking that he is our focus. I mean, Jesus is our focus, not Satan, right? That's not what we're here. That, that's not who we're here for. So, so we don't make Satan the, the focus of our whole life. But we also don't ignore him like he's not real. That's to our detriment. It's, he uses people. He uses our thoughts to slander, to malign, to attack us. But when we encounter other people... The instructions that we have are different. You remember what we're supposed to do? Instead of returning reviling for reviling, we bless the people. Even when they're being used by the slanderer to to slander us, we bless them because our battle is not with them. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. But with Satan, we don't bless him. (laughs) With, With Satan, we don't return reviling with blessing. We stand against him. We're resisting him. We actively and continually resist him. How do we do that? Firm in our faith. If our faith isn't firm, it's not going to help. But that's why we do the work now to build up our faith. Now, before the attacks come, before we start hearing those voices from the other people, from the voices that are going on in our minds, and I'm not talking about just insanity, (laughs) but the, the voices that come and accuse us in our minds. Before all of that, not sitting back and thinking, I've got a Bible, I go to church, you know, I'm around God's people enough. We're actively, we're continually staying within God's protection, worshiping, fellowshipping, praying, reading, hearing, all that God has given us. We're never content with our faith where it is because we're either lying down in our faith or we're growing, we're taking up our armor and growing. We're either being watchful or we're not. We're either resisting or we're not. Because notice how often this adversary rests. It's in verse nowhere. (laughs) He never rests, does he? He's always seeking someone to devour. So this active resistance is firmness of faith. Now the word firmness, you know, be firm in your faith, it it talks, it it really refers to a stubborn, hard-headed, obstinate person. It's usually a bad thing. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's the kind of person that, this is the way I've always done it. This is what I've always done. I'm never going to change. I'm never going to do anything. You know, there's a better way to do it. I don't care. This is how I do it, right? That stubborn, obstinate, nonsensical, frustrating stubbornness. That's this word firm here. That's what our faith is like. Only here it's not nonsensical, but it's just as immovable, firm, resolute. It's like Satan kind of coming against us and he, running, he runs into that brick wall. You see those cartoons where the, you know, the cartoon character pff, runs into the brick wall. That, that's Satan against us. And James 4, 7 says, when we resist him, he flees from us. So firm faith is a resistant faith. Standing firm. Resolutely, stubbornly. I don't care what you say, Satan. I don't care the lies that you give. I don't care what you're telling me about this person or that sister or that brother. I don't care what you're telling me about my sin that Jesus has already paid for. I'm growing in my belief in him. I'm resisting him. Look what else he says in verse 9. Number three, a firm faith is a relational faith. It's a relational faith. Christians, again, are never alone. I mean, we're never alone because we have God himself, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within us. But we're also never alone because of the brotherhood of brothers and sisters throughout the world. We need to be constantly aware, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, Peter says, are being experienced by them. 
There's a fellowship, a camaraderie, a brotherhood, a solidarity when banding together to resist this adversary while loving one another. This is a tough calling, but God gives us the grace to endure the faith to continue. And he gives us one another to help with that. He never expects us to do this on our own. Others are going through the same things. Others are going through many worse things than what we go to, than what we go through. So we turn to God's people for help. We turn to one another to help us and to strengthen us and to help us to strengthen our faith. And we need to be those that believers can turn to. We're growing our faith in our Lord, not just for ourselves, but so that our brother or sister can come to us and say, look, I'm really struggling right now. Can you help me out? I can because I know the Lord and I know his word and I'm strengthening my faith. I can't help you, <laughs> but I can help you to the one who can. And so we're not only building our faith and, and making it more firm for ourselves, but for the benefit of brothers and sisters. Everything that God has given us in this Christian life is useful for growing our faith and resisting this enemy. Prayer, the word of God, praise, worship, but fellow believers are that tangible help that God gives us, this relational faith that we have. And we're spiritually related. We're a people together. So our faith is nurtured and grown as part of that brotherhood. So a firm faith is a relational faith. Number four in verse 10, a firm faith is a reassured faith. It's a reassured faith. He, he reassures us. He gives us the eternal perspective here. This life is only for a little while. Our sufferings are only for a little while in comparison with eternity. Do you remember how it used to seem like it took forever for time to pass when you were a kid? It seemed like it was never going to be time to start school. I've been bored all summer. I can't wait for school to start. And then you're in school and, oh, I can't wait for summer to be here because I'm only doing school all the time, right? And when you're a kid and you're in school, you say, oh, I can't wait to graduate high school. I'm so done with school. I can't wait for it to be over. And then you graduate high school and you look around and you say, now what do I do? Right? It was so much easier in school. The teachers gave me my assignments. I completed the assignments and then I moved on with life. But now what do I do? Where do I go? What do I become? How do I get there? What happens now? Right? Time just passes so quickly. It seems like it was just yesterday I was joining the Air Force. You know, in the, in the room there and swearing in, or, you know, however it was, I forgot now, but uh, I mean, it was a long time ago <laughs> to me. I mean, but it wasn't that long ago. It seems like it was just yesterday. And now, almost married 20 years and four children, and one of them's legally an adult, and now I've got all this gray hair. I mean, <laughs> it just passes, it goes quickly. Eternity is not just for a little while. Eternity, <laughs> there's no measurement for it because it just is. It just, it just happens and it continues to happen. It doesn't pass. It doesn't proceed. It just is forever. So this life in comparison with eternity is short. All of the suffering will end and it will be in just a little while compared with forever. And it will be in just a little while compared even with the perspective of wisdom that comes with age. Man, that, you know, I was suffering for that time, but it's past, and the Lord saw me through it. And it's not something to be sad about. After the suffering is over, after a little while, the God of all grace, let's just pause there for a minute, the God of all grace, that's how the sentence begins in the original, but he's, he's the focus. He's the one that we're looking at. He's the one that we're believing in, not myself, not my life, not what happens to me, but the God of all grace, his powerful grace that saves me, who brings me purpose for my life, who brings purpose for suffering, the, the, the one who's bringing it all to accomplish his purposes. This God of all grace gives us gifts and blessings and hope and peace and grace and faith to endure. This amazing God of all grace is the same one who has called us into his eternal glory. It's a reminder back from chapter 1 where we saw the, in, the inheritance that he has built for us that's perfect and he guards it. It's eternal, it endures forever, it's pure and it's perfect and it never loses its shine, it's fresh, it's pure today just as it was 2,000 years ago and it'll be just as fresh 2,000 years from now, 2 billion years from now. It's a perfect glory that he has called us to. After a little while of suffering, we will be there with him forever. 
And he, the God of all grace, is the focus then and now. You know, our idols can't give us any of that. Our idols tempt us with temporary pleasure. The idols of the Greeks and the Romans fought together, and they, had, they were imperfect. They were worse than human beings. I mean, they were almost powerful children, those, those gods that they worshipped. But this God is perfect. In all of his attributes, he is perfect. His mercy and grace never go too far. His anger never goes too far. He's perfectly balanced in every attribute. 2 Corinthians 1.3, he is the father of mercies and God of all comfort. He's both compassionate and merciful and righteous judge. But this God, this God of all grace, here's what he will do for us. These four things here that, that Peter lists we, that we could never do for ourselves, in his great and mighty, powerful grace, here's what he does. Personally and emphatically, he himself, Peter says. The first one is restore. The word means to repair, to adjust thoroughly, to reinstate. It's used of resetting broken bones. He restores us. He, he supplies what's lacking. Our sin has defaced God's image in us. It's broken our relationships with one another and worse, with him. Our sin has ruined how we think, how we feel, how we live our lives, so we have to work on all that, but God will restore us. He will fix us, repair what sin broke and stained and ruined. He picks us up out of the rust pile, sands us all off, and sets us up. Next, he will confirm. Confirm, it means to set in a certain position, established, settled, Solid as granite. We will never be moved when God settles and establishes us. As God does his work to confirm us and we do our part through his grace, working to establish and firm up this faith, our wet concrete hardens into the hard concrete that's firm in faith, never moving. When we trust in him as our faith is growing, we've talked about this before, we're never told just to trust and do nothing, sit back and do nothing. We're told in the scriptures to trust Jesus as we do what we must. Trust as we do what we must. So he, he gives us the things to do, and as we do those things, he blesses them. That's how he grows us. So the powerful God of all grace will restore us, and he'll confirm us. Next, he will strengthen us. He supernaturally causes us to be strong. It's, it's related to confirm above, but it intensifies and extends the meeting. He imparts strength. He gives us strength that we don't have. He reinforces our concrete with rebar, right? He puts more strength in where he's already confirmed and strengthened and settled. He takes the weak flame of a candle that can be blown out by a child and turns it into a wildfire that mankind can't put out in his greatest efforts, let alone Satan. God strengthens us as, as we strengthen our faith the way he's told us to. He, he in, just strengthens the strengthening. <laughs> he makes it even more strong. Finally, he says, he will establish. This word establish is to lay the foundation or the ground. You can build a really strong building, but if you don't ground it in a foundation, it's going to fall over. In fact, in 2009 in China, a 13-story apartment building completely remained intact but fell over. <laughs> uh, thankfully, people had, well, it was under construction. People didn't live there. But the ground was unstable. The company didn't take into account the loose ground underneath it. They built a very strong apartment building, but as soon as the ground gave way, the whole building just toppled over in one piece. God will establish us on a firm foundation. He, not just restore and confirm and strengthen, but ground us firmly in him. He does all of this. He repairs and restores and sets us firmly on our feet. He gives us new strength and firmness, and he settles our hearts and lives so that we will persevere. So we don't live in fear of this slanderer, this accuser. We don't fear him. Even more, you don't fear any of his lies. You don't fear any of what he's telling you about other people or about yourself. You see all of those for what they are, and rather than dwelling there, you take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. You stand firm. You stand fast because of what is, who God is and what he's doing in you, what he will do. That is a reassured faith. That's why Jesus says the gates of hell will not stand against his church. 
And this is how, because of God's work in us. So a firm faith is a ready faith. It's a resistant faith. It's a relational and reassured faith. Finally, number five, firm faith is a reverent faith. Verse 11, it's a reverent faith. In all of this, Peter just becomes overwhelmed by this good, kind, loving, wise, powerful God. So he proclaims to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. A dominion is strength and power and might and force that we can't comprehend. It's unlimited power. Don't think for a minute that Satan is the God of this world. He is little g God of this world, but God is even in control of him. God rules over everything. To God is the dominion. For how long? Forever. Into the ages, Peter says. Amen. The word means so be it. In certainty. In truth. This is the objective truth, the objective faith. God rules. So now we, in subjective faith, believe it. Submit to it. So recognize this. Praise him for it. Say this verse. Know this truth. Sing this truth. We do. (laughs) Pray this truth. We do together. This is our amazing God, the sovereign, powerful, mighty God who cares for us. And he does all of this for us, for his glory. Our application, what do we take from this place? What do we remember from these verses? Well, first, in our notes, firm up your faith. Again, we're either firming or softening it. We're either watching and ready or we're not and we're laying down. So firm it up. When it's firm, when you're, when you're following the Lord's instructions, you're doing what he says to do, his grace will strengthen it and he will make it a ready faith and a resistant faith and a relational faith and a reassured faith and a reverent faith. And next, in Jesus, we trust as we do what he says we must. We continue to build it up. This is how he builds it up in us. We trust in him as, he do, as we do what he says we must. And it's all for his glory. Father, we praise you and we thank you, God, because you are this amazing, powerful God. Father, it's not right for us to come before you in prayer on our own merit. God, it's not appropriate for us to try to enter your gates. God, we have nothing to offer, Lord, that would make us worthy of coming before you, but in Jesus, Father, in your perfect Son, you give us access to yourself. You give us fellowship with him and with you and with one another. God, in this faith that you give us to believe, in this faith that you give us to hold on to you, Father, you've given us a way to strengthen it so that we can hold firm Lord, we have a very powerful adversary, an enemy that we cannot do battle with on our own, Father. We have no power against him, but you have all power. You have all dominion. God, we pray that you would protect us from him, that you would lead us not into temptation, lead us not into the evil one, Father. You would protect the hearts and minds of each person here, the hearts and minds of those listening online. God, I pray that you would give us the courage and boldness and love to share your gospel with those around us so that they will not be devoured by this roaring lion. Father, we pray for protection for each child in here. God, that you would give us the the words to say and the, the passion about your truth to share with them what you have said, what you've taught us, what you've shown us, Father. How we can be growing in you and how they can come to know Jesus and begin their faith journey, Father. God, we pray that you would strengthen us. We pray that you would use us for your glory. We ask this not for ourselves, but Lord, it's so good for us. It's so beneficial to us, but we ask this for your glory because God, you're our focus. You're the one who is worthy of all praise and attention and admiration and adoration and glory. Father, to you, not to us, Lord, but to you, to your great name, we give thanks, we give praise. In Jesus' name, amen.